Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, January 13th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, host of the Reeducation podcast and commentary contributing editor, Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So, Eli, we always have you on when classified information is flying out of cabinets and into the strange hands of ordinary people in unsecure locations. So, of course, we had to have you on today to discuss the fact that it's okay that there was classified information in Joe Biden's garage, because as Joe Biden said, it's also where his Corvette was. Apparently, I don't know if you know this, but the Corvette car has a mysterious force field that functions to protect classified information (laughs) from the prying eyes of those who are not cleared it's like the Twinkie defense, right? But it's the Stingray defense. You can it's a that. sweet yes. car. Regardless it, of the classified documents, it's a nice car. And it reminds me of that famous Onion article about Joe Biden, in you know, in, like shirtless in shades, like, you know, cruising chicks in Dewey Beach. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anyway. Well, little, little, little black Corvette, baby, you are much too fast. And yeah. here we are to discuss three different locations in which Joe Biden apparently, or his people, or whatever, apparently stashed classified information from the Obama administration, won the Penn-Biden Center for right. getting $56 million from the Chinese in Washington, the other his garage, and the third apparently his house outside his garage, or you know through the door in the garage into the house, somewhere in the house they found, and of course... So, um, A, it turns out that when they found the classified information at the Penn-Biden Center for Boondoggles, uh, the lawyers immediately contacted the National Archive. Right. Did not, however, despite being lawyers, contact the Justice Department. Justice Department was unaware of the discovery of mishandled classified information at the Penn Biden Center for having Democrats have think tanks at at universities and uh, were not informed of this fact and may not have known about it until December 20th when they were informed of the second tranche of documents in the Corvette force field garage. So uh, what do you make of that? Do you think that Biden's lawyers simply didn't know that they should contact the FBI? Did Biden's lawyers not contact people in the White House to say, what do we do with the fact that the sitting president of the United States' office had mishandled classified information in it or what? Where, where uh, you- I'm OK, so I have two. I, so first of all, every Republican, every every Trump super fan is entitled to you know, as much, you know, sweet to cocaine as they desire. Um, This is, uh, uh, you know, this is this is the petard to which um, the Democrats have hoisted themselves on yet again. And so everybody can claim hypocrisy and, you know, delight in the irony. But I take a slightly different view. 
And um, perhaps I am foolish for putting any faith in this Republican majority, but I think it's a good idea to have a church style commission to look at the web, as they call it, the weaponization of the federal government. Um, but I do think it is long overdue to have a kind of, you know, serious oversight hearings with regards to the CIA and the FBI and its recent history. And if that is something and because I care about that and because I want that to succeed, I don't think it is a good idea to elevate the issue of protecting state secrets um, in this particular way, because it is a set, it is effectively making the argument that the FBI and the CIA uh, will be using uh, in a few weeks or months as um, Jim Jordan and other Republicans you know, demand to see uh, documents with regards to Russiagate and Hunter Biden and things like that. So I take the view that until the government or until someone can show me what the actual documents are, there is so much overclassification that I am not taking anyone's word on it. And, and I, I don't think it is enough for me to care about it either in the Mar-a-Lago raid or in the um, Wilmington Stingray Garage raid or not a non-raid, I guess, um, that uh, the mishandling of classified documents in and of itself is something that uh, should rise to the level of a five-alarm scandal. That's a very interesting perspective. Um, one of the reasons... I mean, and so I'm allowing, I just want to say, I am allowing that there are documents that if they were in that garage would, would be a scandal. There certainly are. If there was a list of CIA code word assets in the Western Hemisphere, that should be locked in a safe in the CIA, and no one should ever see that. If it was, you know, very, very sensitive information on technology that the Russians or the Chinese had that they didn't know that we had or something like that, sure. But a lot of times this stuff is classified, is overclassified or is classified in such a way, but you could read about it in a newspaper. It's just, there's too much of that that I've seen in my career covering the national security state that just telling me that it's classified alone is not going to get me excited. Well, okay, let's go back to the yeah. gloating. Yes. Because um, uh, there's a lot of reasons to, there are a lot, many reasons to gloat, and we even here will gloat, <clears throat> though we are not fans of Trump. I want to analogize the gloating uh, in reverse to something that happened in the, in the aughts, 2006, 2007, 2005. Uh, and that is this uh, bizarre moment when uh, the question was who had unmasked or who had revealed the identity of the uh, CIA agent Valerie Plain, right? Uh, who uh, worked, whose husband Joe Wilson had written an op-ed in the New York Times revealing that uh, there was an effort to uh, politicize intelligence relating to yellow cake in Niger. Right. And eventually Scooter Libby was convicted of a charge of having lied to prosecutors about or whatever, having having said he didn't remember what it doesn't matter in a great he, miscarriage he was convicted in an ancillary in a great miscarriage in an ancillary charge it turned out that he wasn't the person who had exposed her identity it was richard armitage so, it was richard armitage deputy secretary of state who had exposed her identity the, i'm bringing this up only because the person who cried 
the wildest and loudest and most pompous crocodile tears on this matter was David Korn, the oh, Washington yes. editor of the nation who was how can we do this you know that there are cia people are going to get killed and you can't this is a, a felony this is treason also uh, the David first reporter Korn, to, to give us uh, uh to give us the contents of the steel dossier that's right david corn uh spent much of his career defending the honor of if stone whom we now know to have been an agent of the Soviet Union, and his we know magazine. he met. We know he met with Soviet ambassadors and probably Soviet KGB. We know that he he had regular meetings. I don't. I a, agent. I, I I hear you. I don't. I wouldn't conclude that he was an agent. I wouldn't say that. I know that he was very very comfortable meeting with Soviet, um, various Soviet officials to, for his journalism. I'm so, calling him an agent. You can call <laughs> him an agent. Him an agent in the pages of commentary. <laughs> okay, I'm fair enough. Him All Soviet right. assets. <laughs> Harvey Clare says he's a Soviet asset. Okay. The Venona paper says he was a Soviet asset. I'm going with Soviet asset. Anyway, also his magazine uh, and the and the intellectual tendency from which he derives uh, were supporters of Philip Agee, a, a former CIA well, that, asset and journalist yeah. who exposed the identity of the CIA station chief in Athens who was then killed, Robert Welsh, in 1975. So this And, guy, and also ran a publication whose mission was to just run... The names of undercover agents abroad, right? right. (laughs) So David Korn weeps bitter tears of rage and fury at the horrible treatment of Valerie Plame, having spent a career in part uh, deflecting the notion that there was a Soviet spy problem in the United States and excusing the behavior of people who were arguably Soviet assets. (laughs) That was an astounding jaw-dropping moment. And here we have, in some sense, the reverse of this, which is people going, Trump, how could documents admire? He's moving them around and he lies to federal agents. The what what if he's selling them to a hostile foreign power Yeah, to finance his got, next campaign? Got, yeah, information about the French president. Mm. And, yeah. <clears throat> and then five, six, seven days ago, Guess what? Joe Biden has classified information in unsecured places in his post-vice presidency. And the pretzel twisting that has been going on on the part of the professional uh, Trump-hating, Biden-excusing press and uh, commentariat um, has been thrilling. There is, and this the part, <laughs> the, really... the part, the part of it that really gets me, and and to Eli's earlier point about how we overclassify, I completely agree. the The challenge with this particular situation is that we are working with the laws as they are currently on the books. I mean, if this sparks reform about overclassification and and new laws that that make it less likely to overclassify stuff that doesn't need to be classified, that would be great. But we do have to assess Biden in the same way we're assessing Trump, which is under the current laws. Just having a single document is a single charge. They will charge you for each document. So this argument, the first argument that I heard was, well, it's just a few documents, unlike the hundreds Trump has. Doesn't matter. One document is enough to get you charged under these statutes. So there's that. The other problem is that I think there's a real tendency here to downplay uh, the argument that Trump was making that, I mean, we even ridiculed a little bit, but 
presidents can declassify things. Vice presidents cannot. They do not have that power. So even if you if you accept that a president can, you know, do a blanket declassification, which is kind of questionable and legally is being hashed out right now in the courts with regard to Trump, that was never on the table for Biden. Anything he held, he had no power to declassify. And then there's this issue of who had access to a garage and the downplaying. Of, well, I keep my cool car there, man. Like, of course it's safe. It's ridiculous. His his crack addicted son probably had access to that space. And this is not good. This is someone who was meeting with foreign guys, making a lot of money sitting on the boards of foreign companies. If there was stuff in that document stash that could have aided his efforts to profit from his father's position, that's bad. So all of the I think the pretzel twisting is just so obvious that you're you're seeing a lot of eye rolling when CNN comes out with, well, this is really a problem. His, his staff was really muddled and rushed when they tried to box everything up. No, do not throw your staff under the bus here. He cannot get away with doing that or he shouldn't get away with doing that. An important uh, hey, side should... note to the thing that you just said, Christine, is that we know that Hunter Biden had access to the garage because Joe Biden told Jay Leno uh, on a TV show in, in early 2016 that for Christmas, his son Hunter had had the had had secretly or, you know, as a present, uh, the engine of his Corvette, you know, I don't know what you do, reworked, you know, rebuilt, rebuilt, whatever, you know, because I'm a car guy. Hmm. He had, you know done something to the car presumably that means that he had to be able to get into the garage to release the car to the car dealer so uh but i just therefore no not that not that that means that hunter knew that there were there were there were papers there just he he left the engine at the repair shop and never picked it up no yeah (laughs) i mean look but go sorry it's a garage. We assume that a billion people, I mean, not a billion people, he was a former vice president of the president, but it's a garage. We assume people come in and out of the it. The lawn care guy. Yeah, yeah, has yeah. To go I into mean, the garage to get yeah. but, Noah's leaf blower. Got to get the, got to get the, the gas powered leaf blower to clean the yard up. But um, in response to your initial question, John, about why they didn't contact the FBI, with the discovery of the papers. I my guess is that the thinking is let's keep this small, let's keep this quiet for as long as we can. Maybe we could maybe it'll stay that way. Well, that's the theory that John was working on as to why we know about this at all, right? Yeah. Can I can I just make an ahead ahead and this is a pattern. public. This is part of a pattern, which is when the public learns about scandals with government. And I just want to mention there's two examples that still stick in my craw, okay? Eric Swalwell, member of the Intelligence Committee, sleeping with a fundraiser named Fang Fang, who ended up being a Chinese spy. Now, did we find out about that as soon as the FBI learned that there was this improper relationship and Eric Swalwell's office had no idea because there was no defensive briefing, which would have been the uh, norm with regards Explain to what Trump a defensive, people? A defensive briefing a defensive is, when the, is when the FBI would go to a major candidate and say, listen, we understand that somebody on your staff or we understand that somebody you've taken money from or something like that you've raised money from is actually a foreign asset and we want you to be aware of it. And then basically giving the politician an opportunity to resolve the situation without public embarrassment, without embarrassment in the press. Now, Trump never got any of these defensive briefings in 2016. Uh, He was told about it by James Comey and said, you're not a target. It might be some people, which was a lie at the time. And we all know that that's the that's the sort of history of Russiagate. My point is, is that with Eric Swalwell, we find out about Fang Fang. And with Dianne Feinstein, we find out that her driver was a Chinese spy. 
after it is all resolved. So the story is this thing happened. We went to the politician. They handled it. They fired the person They, you know, they gave back the money or whatever it was. And so it really wasn't a kill shot. It wasn't an ongoing drama. It wasn't an ongoing investigation, which becomes this sort of narrative on its own, like Scooter Libby or the many Trump things like Carter Page or whatever. And that's a huge difference. And so it does matter. The timing is really, really important. That said, it's not an exact analogy with Mar-a-Lago because we now know there was this huge back and forth with the National Archives and the Justice Department and the Trump, it appears, clearly told his lawyers to obfuscate and lie. None of that we know on the Biden side. But still, right. the fact we, that we learn it after, you know, it's sort of after the midterms and yes. like everything that, else. And, and one, one, one bit yeah. on that is that remember what Biden was running on in, on behalf of the Democrats in the midterms, which is look at the chaos and the illegality and all the mess that Trump, you know, January 6th, we had to raid his house. He's lying to the, you know, he's stealing all these documents. We don't know why. He right. went on 60 Minutes and was like, this is terrible. So he actually was, that that was part of the messaging for the midterm election campaign. Yes. And so yeah, that is why was, it was like, buried. Look, look at all these lunatic candidates that we right. funded during the primaries that we helped bring to you by giving lots of money to you and in-kind donations. Yeah. I want to talk about the discovery or the, the, the release of the information that uh, Biden had, uh, there had been this discovery of the classified documents at the Biden center for having classified mishandled (laughs) information. Um, We heard from Merrick Garland yesterday. Was it yesterday? I, I can't even keep track of this anymore. So yesterday at 115, Merrick Garland is, issues this statement. And he says that the uh, Chicago, that the uh, Illinois U.S. attorney who had been tasked with looking into the matter of the mishandled Biden classified information and who could not be the special prosecutor because he is resigning to go into the private sector at the end of this month that he had on the 5th of January, that is, that was a week before Merrick Garland spoke yesterday, the 5th of January, came to Merrick Garland and said, I recommend the appointment of a special prosecutor. And if I'm not mistaken, it was a day later that the first report came out about the mishandled classified information. So what we had here, if I'm I'm theorizing, was a slow rollout because there were two instances of classified information being mishandled. One on November 2nd, one on December 20th. Uh, CBS News found out about the November 2nd at the Biden Center documents. And then Monday or Tuesday, three or four days later, came the word that there was a finding at Biden's house in Wilmington or in the garage in Wilmington. Um, We had been led when you read those stories about the finding of the documents in the Wilmington house, it sounded like those had been found after the disc after the first news story that said that there had been documents at the Biden center, meaning between January 6th or 7th and and the time that the news story came out, that was not the case. So, um, if and I'm if I'm right about this, and this was it wasn't a hostile leak, 
but it was a slow discharge of information from the Biden administration about the mishandled classified information. They lied from the get-go. They said, again, I, I don't know this to be the case, so I'm only speculating. They said documents were found at the Biden Center. They were immediately returned to the National Archive. And that was the news story. And did not say, and documents were found at a second location in Wilmington, Delaware. Wait, it's worse. Yeah. They were asked, are there any more documents? And they said no, nothing that we're aware of. So they had to have been, they to have been aware of it. How could they not 20th. have been aware of it? Right. They were aware of it. I mean, unless unless it's J.J. Hunsecker from the Sweet Son of Success and my left hand hasn't known what my right hand is doing in 30 years. Biden's got some lawyer team doing stuff at his house and at the Biden Center, but no one in Biden's White House is in contact with that team that is looking through or closing up the office or doing whatever the hell it is that they that they do. So what we have here is a deliberate effort to mislead. It's not criminal to mislead. It is not, you know, you don't have to tell everybody everything. Uh, but when you get caught out, you're getting caught out. And I was watching CNN and MSNBC yesterday after Merrick Garland spoke. And two different reporters, I think Carol Lee of MSNBC and then this very lantern jaw guy on CNN whose name I can't remember, we're both kind of like staggering a little bit from A, the revelation that a third document had been found in the house and B, that all of this had happened over the course of two months and that Merrick Garland had already been told that a special prosecutor needed to be appointed on the 5th of January before the news story came out and the, the size of the deception that was being practiced on them the Biden press corps that all the Biden press corps wants is to be nice to Biden. Well, to, that's all it wants. And they're trying to be so nice to him and give him the benefit of the doubt and say, it's different from Trump. And the information is different from Trump. And just like every other white house in American history, they view the press as antagonists. They view them as a danger to their good working order. And they are going to lie and cheat and dissimulate as necessary to to you know to weasel out of difficult situations but, but maybe they're also getting i mean the real the, the if you really want to get conspiratorial and thinking about how this why this unraveled the way it did it could just be i mean like how, the the initial discovery we have no explanation for the initial discovery but we do know that Republicans have been saying if we regain the majority, we're going to investigate everything about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and all that. You know, maybe he sent lawyers there to see what he had, if there was anything that that they could get ahead of in terms of that investigation or anything that was possibly uh, open to subpoena that maybe they didn't know, you know, just kind of get in his house in order in that sense. Um, and then, you know, then there's the less conspiratorial, but sort of politically uh, viable scenario that this is a pretty good way to get him to shuffle off the uh, out of the presidency or you know a gentle push from people who say oh you're just you're too scandal plagued you're too old we need new we need to we need a refresh i mean i i'm with noah i don't think he's going to give up power that easily but for those who actually have wanted him off the stage and not to run again this is a good good way to to facilitate but, that but that implies those... a whole lot more competence than i'm willing to lend anybody right. no i i'm just saying it's a theory but I, I mean the idea that they were getting at they were rummaging around through old documents to get out of head of ahead of a future you know a republican investigation into his 
into his behavior as vice president and the role of Hunter Biden there. I mean, that seems to me fairly plausible. Would that that just seems like something good lawyers would tell their clients to do? I mean, I I don't know who would be the motive actors in a conspiracy like that. It was Biden's own lawyers who found the documents in in the office. And right. Went, like, I think they might have been looking for other stuff, just like. But Oh, crap. See, what? There's an envelope, manila envelope. It oh, says right. private. Says they're going yeah. through. They're going through stuff. They open the manila envelope. They pull out one document. It says, you know. Classified. <laughs> well, it says S.I.T.K. Yes. or something yes. like that, which is like the highest level of classification. It doesn't just say top secret. <laughs> I don't know why he would, you know, whatever. And they go, oh, crap shove it back in, seal it, and they immediately call the archive. Now, by the way, did they immediately call the archive or did they immediately call the White House counsel's office? Well, but my question really, is, what really were they think, doing do we going really through really think papers? that they called the archive? No. Without first calling somebody in the Biden, you know, th- their client to say, um, we found something here, uh, what should we do? And they're like, call the archive. I mean, really? Biden's the client. They don't have some independent relationship with the National Archive. They can't they can't make decisions about how to deal with this stuff without some kind of a, you know, without some kind of a clarification from their from the person who's paying them. But my question is, what were they doing going through all those papers in the first place? Well, I I think that's a very plausible theory. Well, it could be. Oh, we've been so busy. We didn't have time to shut down the Biden Center for pen getting for laundering you know, Chinese donations, yeah, whatever. Yeah. We, we just didn't have the time for that. Uh, you know, it's been two. I mean, my God, you know, look how busy we are spending $6 trillion of your money. We couldn't be bothered to think about something like that, whatever. And obviously the transition between Trump and Biden was very chaotic and Trump was refusing to leave the way, you know, give anybody intelligence brief, whatever. Oh, how about, uh, you know, let's take a break. Let me just talk to you guys about Bambi, our advertiser today, and then we'll get back to this. Because when running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. They can purloin classified information. That's not what it says here. It says, it says like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. So you better talk to Bambi, okay? Because with Bambi, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month, available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly, team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers can easily cost 80 grand a year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under Podcast. When you sign up, it'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com, Bambi dot com. Type in Commentary Magazine. Christine, uh, you uncovered a little a soupçon of information uh, that I would like to share with our, our people here, um, which is that um, here's what you texted to us this morning. Uh, the new defense is that Biden was so busy as vice president that his staff was muddled and hurried. And here's a CNN tweet. White House aides process to pack up Biden's workspaces was muddled and hurried as he used his office until the final minutes of his vice presidency. 
Yes. It was but, muddled and, the, and, and also hurt. hurried. And did well, this I mention was, hurried and muddled? And the CNN, uh, the, as Noah pointed out in our text thread, the, the picture they chose to illustrate the story, just in case you're wondering whose side CNN is playing for right now, was a teary-eyed Biden receiving the Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. So it's like, look at this hero. He was just so busy getting accolades for his terms as vice president that how... and. and the reason it struck me, and you know, I, I I feel this very deeply when people with a lot of power in Washington, D.C. choose to take this tack, and this is what Biden seems to be through his messengers in the press doing, they're throwing the staff under the bus. And that really annoys me. I, I Like, Mr. I'm going to take responsibility, unlike Trump, look at the contrast, blah, blah, blah. You don't throw your staff under the bus for this. The buck has to stop somewhere. If he was vice president, he he's the person who's allowed to have eyes on that classified material you don't blame your muddled and hurried staff. Um, that's just wrong. So it annoyed me. Um, but I did I did particularly love the contrast of of how they're trying to frame this story versus how it was framed in the case of Trump. One of the very legitimate issues that Republicans are raising here is that they're the visitor logs to the White House are uh, very well maintained. But visitor logs to the president's residences in Rehoboth and Wilmington are not necessarily. So you have Republican members of Congress, Ken Buck, Elise Stefanik, others saying, release the visitor logs insofar as they exist. But do they exist? And to what degree are they well-maintained? Have they been adulterated? Um, can we even determine that? And this is a national security matter. It's, it's of objective merit to investigate this claim and the degree to which uh, American intelligence has been compromised by the improper handling of these documents. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, but this but this also speaks no, to the broader argument about about Biden. If Biden wants to argue that spending half of his time as president at his beach house is legit because he's doing all the work of president when he's at the beach house, then he owes the American people transparency about who he is meeting with at that residence because he does he spends more time at that beach house than even Trump did golfing. Well, it's so not, can it's I can I, exactly. wait, wait, I want to go ahead. ahead. No. Okay. Let me let me give you my speech. I just wanted to say one thing. It's okay, not public right. it's not a matter of public record. The visitors' yeah. logs. They Precisely. are they are private, but they but they're maintained, and they well, can they're be supposed subpoenaed. to be. Well, we don't. Yeah, no, they but, can. They can and will be subpoenaed, but we don't. Like you said, John, these well, are private records. There's no law that's a, mandating well, that they maintain in, 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 in the White House logs can be accessed. In out of Wilmington. But the, they can? Yeah, the White House, you can the White White House records about about who comes and goes are public record. You can easily get that information. I don't know about I don't we don't even know if they're maintaining a similar record for his time at the beach house. That's that okay. that was always the question I had. Eli, go ahead. OK, let me let me make my case this way. Sort of a brief history of breaches in the last, I don't know, 11 or so years. There is, of course, um, uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, who provides WikiLeaks with, uh, you know, revelatory, but at times very embarrassing uh, diplomatic cables. There uh, was a huge incident at Central Command in Tampa, Florida, when uh, what is likely believed to be of Russian USBs were used in computers there in the early 2000 teens. Then we have Edward Snowden, who managed to um, find the internal NSA, I kid you not, Wikipedia pages for various intelligence programs and then provide them to The Guardian and The Washington Post and uh, eventually The Intercept. 
move move up to 2015, 2016. What do we know? Well, that the actual State Department email system, the one that Hillary Clinton was supposed to use, was probably hacked by the Russians. And on and on it goes. There are these enormous breaches in the intelligence community which have done real damage in terms of giving our adversaries access to classified information. And yet the scandals that we obsess on are whether uh, Paula Broadwell, uh, who was the paramour of David Petraeus, uh, when she was writing her biography of Petraeus, had access to code word documents that were improperly stored in, you know, her uh, Virginia Beach apartment or this thing about it may have been possibly poorly stored. We don't even know what the documents are. And yet we have these other examples of enormous breaches, not to mention, by the way, all of our assets being rolled up recently in China. You know, 10 years ago, the same thing in Lebanon with Hezbollah. I mean, it's like but all wait, what does all that goes. have to do with the implied it, existence of visitor, that visitor real damage, real damage to the intelligence community in terms of real breaches, mass breaches, some of it known, some of it never uh, disclosed, but known by adversaries is a huge problem. It hasn't spurred reform, but we tend to focus all of our energy on potential compromises of intel of classified information. I, I, I we don't, don't even know what it is because it's a way it's it, it's a it's a game of taking out various high level political figures. But of course, if you're lower level, you will go to jail forever. So it's like for me, I look at it like you're you're maintaining, you know, this really high standard about like, you know, the storage and handling of classified information when the actual intelligence community has these obviously structural problems that have been exposed right. by, you know, various internal threats and other things. But I mean, to be fair, I I, I think you're 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 alighting to two things here because okay. it's not as though it's not as though Chelsea Manning, reality winner, uh, weren't prosecuted uh, for their for their security breaches, and it's not as though Edward Snowden wasn't prosecuted in absentia for his for his uh, for what he did with that information. If what you're saying is that that should have spurred reforms inside the intelligence community to make sure those breaches, you know, don't didn't go any further. Uh, that that that's one thing but i mean those were major stories what's interesting about those is that they were defended they were it was thought you know the, there's a whole crew of people who think that edward snowden was a you know wonderful patriotic figure because he exposed the secrets of the us intelligence community in relation to iraq and there is this whole hagiographic hey, oliver stone glenn greenwald uh, world in, in Laura Poitras world in which Edward Snowden is one of the great heroes of the 21st century and not a villain while he sits in his apartment in Moscow as a as a catamite of Vladimir Putin. Um, and what but, realizable reforms are on the table? No, it's but not my that we point, need, my not that point, we need to allow me to finish my sentence. Right, it's not right. that we need to dump more money into the intelligence community to better police the over classification of documents. It's that we need no. to stop classifying documents to the well, degree I, that I, they are over. Well, that's what Eli thinks. Well, that's what I think. But my my but that point, is the reform. And okay, so, but how is it? I'm I'm saying just when when Edward Snowden is it reveals two scandals one is the scandal of edward snowden right and people focused on that and then he was tried in ascension all that other stuff and then the other is how is it the possible that the intelligence community completely missed all of this and missed all these signs with him you know being dissatisfied and everything like that how is it possible that he was able to beat the system that way and it kind of goes back and it's just something by the way that like over time the u.s intelligence community has been not it, it's really hasn't been since hoover that the U.S. intelligence community has had a handle on these kind of internal threats 
that really do expose state secrets to our adversaries. And then for us to like get out of control, focused and obsessed on political figures that may have endangered for the improper storage without any evidence but that any of that information got to the wrong but here's, bad guys but, is just to me is a huge disparity. But here's why it is the focus right okay. now, because the Biden administration itself has actively demanded that Trump release all of the White House records to the public, because in the lead up to January 6th, they wanted to know every single person who was coming yes. into the White House. And he claimed executive privilege, which strikes me as ridiculous. I think he, if you visit the White House, we pay for that. That's the people's house. Yes. We get to, that is our home, you know, as as a a nation, he gets to borrow it for the years he's in office. So those records should be public. But the Biden administration was very clear about, oh, we're on the side of transparency and truth telling, except, of course, when it comes to the beach house. Then there's no transparency. Then it, that's just his private space, well, I'm which not, is I fine, know, but I, he spends he, half you can, his time there. Yeah, ding, ding Biden on all the hypocrisy. And the yeah. Demo- as I said, the Democrats are hoisted on their own petard. They wanted to, they were the ones who made a huge deal about this with Trump, although you could say there's the Republicans who made a big deal about mishandling classified information with Clinton and the email server. So it always goes back right. and forth. My point is that all of these cases are politicians who may have endangered classified documents, which we do not know what they are in this in the case of Trump or Biden. And so we can't judge whether it was a really serious breach or not. And as opposed to these huge things, and by the way, some of them are not Snowden or Assange are, you know, related. Some of them are just like, you know, how is it that the State Department email system got hacked by the Russians? How is it that CENTCOM was able to be penetrated by a foreign power? How is it the Chinese were able to, to, by the way, get access to the Chinese like six years ago, got access to the file that is kept on every single classified record investigation and classified clearance thing they have. They've had that now for six years. So that to me is a huge is a real intelligence breach. I, no, I just want to say I think, to know. Yeah, I, Abe, sorry. I, I think there are two different problems and they're kind of equally important here. Yeah. OK. Uh, one is the is the is the kind of uh, security uh, uh, problem that you're that you're detailing, uh, Eli, and it's somewhat rampant. Right. Um, but the other is high level American politicians acting like they have carte blanche. Um, and and sort of like like they own the joint and yep. and and sort of doing whatever they want and and that is a different type of problem from a from a, a intelligence community problem. That's Look, absolutely I will, brilliant. I will absolutely I will, yes. I will I will tell you a story about the aforementioned Scooter Libby, uh, who was Dick Cheney's chief of staff, to explain why these th- this thing about how there are two levels of you know security right or two levels people who act with impunity and then people who are careful. So Scooter Libby, uh, horribly mistreated, uh, conv- you know, wrongly, wrongly convicted of, of a, of a, of a crime effectively of a crime he didn't commit for having said that he didn't remember something that there's no evidence that he remembered. I went to visit Scooter Libby. I can even tell you the date that I went to visit Scooter Libby in the white house. I was writing my book, Bush country and I went to visit him. I know I played softball with him in the 1980s uh, to interview him about what was going on in the Bush White House. And it was May 1st, uh, 2003. So Scooter's an old friend of mine. Uh, I'm a uh, I'm wandering around the Bush White House talking to everybody. And I'm in Scooter's office. And um, uh, basically, we have like an hour and a half to talk to each other. And. At various moments, he has to leave the office to go say something either to Cheney or something like that and come back in. And 
As he got up, he called in his secretary to come and stand by his desk. I was sitting in a chair, you know, on the other side of his desk to stand there to make sure that I did not look at what was on his desk. That was routine behavior. I worked in a White House. I worked in the Reagan White House. I visited people in the Clinton White House. I visited people in the Bush White House. Anyone who might have national security secrets on their desks, who is a public servant, political appointee, whatever, was paranoid about doing anything that might expose information in their office to somebody who did not have a security clearance. Um, flash forward to 2022, November 2nd, 2022, and there is this envelope in Biden's office at the Penn Biden Center that says personal on it, inside which is classified information. Who wrote the word personal on that envelope? What, what does that mean? Was it a harried staffer who decided that he was shoveling papers from Biden's desk into a box the way we hear Trump was? Like, somebody had to take these documents, lift them off a desk, put them in a file fold in, in a manila envelope, which is not an ordinary place you would keep papers, by the way, right? You put them in a file folder or something, seal it, and write the word personal on top. That, to me is the crux of this entire issue. I, You know, the worse the documents are, by the way, or the more um, sensitive the documents are, the less we're going to know what they were, right? Like, if sure. they were nothing, if they just were top secret, so it was like, you know what, uh, lunch today in the CIA cafeteria is Yankee bean soup, which, by the way, the CIA would class would put a top secret classification on. They would. I believe every single document at Langley is prima facie from considered. soup to nuts. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So if it's that, then they can say, "Oh, this is all ridiculous. It was just the lunch menu of the CIA on that date," or somebody wanted Biden to have his hands on this after the presidency for some reason and misdirected attention from what was in the envelope by writing the word "personal" on it. The purpose of which is to have someone come six, seven years later, look at the box and say, well, this is a personal envelope. I'm not going to open it. But they did. And that that that's what's in there. So you have a world of people. I was one. I got a briefing when I got uh, code word clearance when I was a speechwriter at the White House. And they scare the crap out of you. They scare the crap out of you about what could happen to you if you if anything goes wrong with information that you have that is code word cleared, you will go to jail for 25 years. You will go to Leavenworth where you will, we will go. You're not going to go to some nice prison farm. You're going to go to a top security prison and you will live the rest of your life in horror. If you screw up with a single piece of paper and then you have Trump and Biden and Eric, well, whoever like behaving with impunity. Now, their elected officials are in a different relation to this. I, I grant you that. But it, it is a very weird world in which nobodies go to jail for 25 years. And these guys are obviously, I don't think, yeah. they, I don't know, are probably going to get off scot-free. 
I mean, Larry, how long did Larry Franklin, the, the, <laughs> the defense department analyst who was, who was panicked about threats to Israel and was sharing information with APAC. No, now, he's sharing information. This? Actually, the story is excuse me, sharing information with, with Condoleezza this. Rice. With Condoleezza Rice, excuse right, me. Right, the National Security Advisor. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know that he ever Two actually went to jail. He didn't go to jail because but he, he was, he was in like in a halfway house. He lost his clearance. He he almost yeah. lost. He, oh. he basically did all this because he needed to keep his pension because his wife was uh, had Parkinson's disease. It's like a huge yeah, right. tragic story yeah. about this really, you know, quirky but very brilliant analyst who i got to know um and then you know his career was over and he was you know scrubbing toilets and taking you know menial jobs and you know his life was indeed ruined as a result of you know what was this alleged you know i thought was a total witch hunt against apac now again like this is the kind of thing where you're guilty he pled guilty he was sentenced to 13 years in prison which was later reduced to 10 months house arrest Okay, here's the other part of it that I would just say that in the broaden the aperture of mishandling of classified state secrets to include um, getting into, you know, sort of my end of it, which is, you know, uh, government officials telling reporters classified information, maybe not giving them documents, although sometimes they do. Um, Then at that point, you have a crime wave in Washington, which is actually not really enforced. I mean, why is there not an FBI investigation every time Bob Woodward writes a book, which is loaded with super secret stuff that he gets in these interviews with senior officials? And we know the technique that Rob and I'm not saying, by the way, that he should be investigated or that his sources should be investigated. What I'm saying is that you're right. It is terribly inconsistent when the FBI and what the FBI chooses to investigate in terms of mishandling classified information. And given the fact that we now have lots of evidence from the inspector general of the Justice Department that the FBI also mishandles classified information and leaks details of ongoing investigations all the time, it appears, to friendly reporters, and they never seem to investigate themselves. And it's only when you've got a Jim Jordan or a Devin Nunes who's going to be unyielding on these questions and create all of this controversy and get all of this criticism that you get that sense. So that's why I come back to the fact that I'm not sure it is smart for the Republicans to make a big deal about mishandling state secrets when they have a much greater interest, in my view, in basically exposing a lot of secrets that were unnecessary secrets in order to show, you know, how the, the rot within the FBI and the CIA. Well, you might be right, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, there's a, I mean, that, that ship no one's going to listen to me. That ship has sailed. So yeah. let's talk about a ship, another ship that very quickly. Sure. Uh, Eli, you have a piece in the February issue of Commentary, which will be up on our website probably on Monday, um, called American Nomenclatura, What the Twitter Files Show. And you have done a deep dive into the revelations by Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and others, Elon Musk having opened these records of Twitter's interactions with government officials over the last four or five years. And uh, you're, you, you have an interesting uh, theory, which is why you call the piece American nomenclatura. First of all, why don't you tell people what a nomenclature, what the nomenclature is, and then why this is a revelation of an American-like nomenclature? Well, it, the nomenclature in the Soviet Union was the um, a kind of ideological elite that was not just that were not just senior officials in in the government itself, but in industry and in culture and other sorts of things. And part of the idea behind the nomenclature, 
was that they they had a, a sort of understanding of like what the what was what was clearly in the public's interest or and that included what the public would need to know um and should know and it, it it's it's twinned very much with the sort of soviet idea of disinformation which was both a kind of a technique in its in its uh, psychological and political warfare against its adversaries but also a kind of duty to protect the soviet citizen from the disinformation of the Western capitalists and so forth. And that is what I think you'd say is not just that you have this task force in the FBI that is trolling Twitter for various violations of the terms of service and then, you know, getting this to through various portals back to uh, Twitter so they can either deamplify or suspend accounts. But it includes other groups that are part of this, what I call the content moderation industrial complex. And that is the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is like monitoring hate speech. Then you have this sort of uh, people that 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 Christine has written about the like disinformation reporters at NBC News and New York Times, who uh, also sort of play a role in either gaining publicity for things uh, and putting pressure on the social media platforms to go after certain kinds of accounts. Then there is like this, you know, trade organization of all the major brands that advertise on social media that want to try to in the name of online safety. And so they have their own sort of that's another sort of note of influence. Um, then there's the app store for Google and Apple, which have their own standards and they potentially could not allow for Twitter to do that, which would mean that Twitter couldn't update, you know, provide these updates for their software and so forth, and basically would could kill the company, um, and that they have a role in sort of saying what is the sort of speech that's allowable. I mean, and then you add to that the state uh, and local authorities, which then use the FBI portal to try to get various accounts suspended. And it kind of you and what you see is this huge thing, not to mention the think tanks and the academics who specialize in this very murky and kind of dubious field of misinformation and disinformation. All of this kind of creates this elite that determines what is going to be available uh, and amplified on uh in terms of our online discourse and that to me is a kind of new nomenclatura there we go and so that's that yeah. is uh eli's piece i look for it on on monday at commentary.org along with our own noah's piece uh which is called the worldwide COVID revolts and we'll talk about that piece in more detail on monday i want to close out the podcast today uh by paying a tribute to Paul Johnson, uh, who died yesterday at the age of uh, 94. Paul Johnson was the closest thing uh, that we have uh, in in Britain, or we had in Britain, to the neoconservative journey taken by uh, many uh, people of his uh, of his age. My father being one of them, Irving Kristol, others of moving from the left. He had been the editor of the. New Statesman in the 1960s and 1970s um, to the you know to to the right to the the Thatcherist uh, right, having seen um, uh, the uh, elite opinion uh, of that he helped uh, marshal and uh, and and lead um, take on a distinctly um, elitist redistributionist and frankly totalitarian. Uh, color his first polemical book enemies of society which came out in the 1970s was a was a portrait of um these kind of Rousseauian intellectuals who sought nothing less than the 
overthrow of the existing uh, liberal uh, system for their own ends. And he considered this a, a terrible thing. But that's not even why we even talk about Paul Johnson today. We talk about Paul Johnson today because he was a species that we don't have that many of. Um, uh, he was a, a self-taught amateur popular historian and uh, wrote what is arguably one of the most important books of the last half of the 20th century, a book that revolutionized thinking on the right and uh, and in the world of uh, sort of understanding of the 20th century. And that was his history, Modern Times, which he published, I believe, in 1984, uh, with, in which he locates the beginning of the new age to the experiment in South uh, America in 1919 that proved that was the uh, scientific proof of the theory of relativity. Uh, and and uh, he says that the when theory of relativity could no longer, which, which had been laid out by Einstein in 1915, four years later is actually demonstrated with this scientific experiment, that this is when uh, the modern age, with all of its... Um, uh, horrors and wonders really began uh, because it was the upending of essentially two millennia of sci of a scientific understand of, of of an understanding of how the world worked that had been entirely revolutionized by this idea that uh, time and space were relative, and um, it's a remarkable book, and it was followed up by many other remarkable books. His history of of the United States. Um, his history of the Jewish people, which is one of the uh, most uh, dumbfoundingly <laughs> um, uh, accomplished pieces of history written in our time, because it seemed that he had somehow ingested the entirety of almost three millennia of Jewish religious, political, and uh, and social thinking and history and was able to lay it out and craft it into a narrative that remains the best single volume history of the Jewish people ever written. He was a wonderful writer. He was a vivid and remarkable person to know, uh, kind of a garrulous, gruff, funny, um, tough-minded. Uh, I went and visited him at his house in, in Ivor, Buckinghamshire, in 1985 1986 to do a profile of him and um the thing that he was most excited about he was working on a new book and he wanted to show me very excitedly this system that he had invented and he had two typewriters and one typewriter he was writing his book and then he would put in a footnote and then he would swerve over to the other typewriter and he would do the bibliographical information for the footnote. And so he was simultaneously writing his book and footnote doing the footnoting. And, um, and he was so proud of this innovation. He said, I think they the only person who's ever done this before. Um, he wrote these books. They were thousands. They were like our friend, Andrew Roberts. He could sort of sit down and in three years, write, a history of the Jewish people from the get-go. And uh, I, I asked him, how is it that this is even possible? How do you do this? 
in this period of time. And he said, I'm, I'm blessed with the ability when I get up in the morning and sit down at my desk to have almost total focus and concentration for three and a half hours. I can blot out everything else in life. I don't know what's going on. I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. My attention is not distracted by anything. And I have three and a half hours of that a day. And you would be astonished. And that means that I can do reading. You know, I can I can do research and reading. And I he showed me these giant file folders of things that he would do where he would read books and take notes and put everything into chronological order so he could follow it while he was writing his histories. So I would do all this. And then I could just, you have no idea how much you can get accomplished if you have three and a half hours a day in which you have almost perfect focus. And a long suffering wife who is raising your four children. I just want to add his wife, Marigold. Yes. So yes, Marigold, (laughs) yes, who who survives him. His son, Daniel, who is the editor of Standpoint and is himself a contributor commentary as Paul was, uh, and his sons, uh, Luke and Cosmo, and his daughter, uh, to all of them, we we express our our our, our deepest uh, condolences. So he was great fun. Uh, he was a real believer. He was a very serious. Uh, he was very serious about his his faith. He was serious about his work, and he was the uh, ultimate object lesson in an intellectual who understood why intellectuals are bad. He wrote a book called Intellectuals. Is a portrait of. Uh, the hubris and arrogance of people who think that they they run the world because uh, their minds work in a certain type of way. Rousseau being one of them, Marx being another, various others. It's a it's itself a, a very amusing uh, and remarkable book, Intellectuals. But if you really want Paul Johnson at his greatest, you want to read Modern Times or History of the Jewish People. Um, we will. I was going to say we shall not see his like again. We sort of do have his like again. Andrew Roberts is very much in the mold of Paul Johnson. But Paul's interest, Andrew, is very much a a person who is interested in modern history and the the time of the month. Paul was interested in sort of anything and everything uh, and and was interested in questions of faith and philosophy and and was like Andrew, also a very, very, very accomplished working journalist. And as I, we have very few such people uh, here in the United States and, uh, and uh, we were lucky to have him. Uh, so uh, Eli Lake, thank you so much for joining us today. Contributing uh, editor of commentary, people go subscribe to the reeducation podcast. What do you have this week? For the new year's revolutions, new year's revolutions. Okay. Monday, we will be discussing Noah's piece on the worldwide COVID revolutions or the revolts, as we call them. Uh, Monday. We're sure about Monday. What? We're sure about that. That we're going to talk about it on Monday? Yeah, that we're going to we're going to convene on Monday. It's federal holiday. (laughs) We are convening on Monday. I will not be joining you. I'm sorry. Christine will not be. We will be convening on Monday to do a show in which we will discuss Noah's piece on the worldwide COVID revolts. Hopefully, we'll be able to devote a lot of time to it so that maybe we can get a little break from the relentlessness of the news, which would be nice because it's frankly, you know, exhausting. Have a wonderful weekend. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. I hope your teams win or lose, whatever your teams are. I hope your team wins or if you're the team you don't like loses. I'm paying no attention to any of this. So good luck to all of you. 
And uh, thank you, Eli, for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Pot Horitz. Keep the candle burning.